The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., 10.30 a.m., or 12 p.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. I don't know if you remember the story, The Tortoise and the Hare. Y'all remember that, that story? It's a famous uh, fable written by the Greek fabulist Aesop, which means that story, the tortoise and the hare, that you, most of us are probably familiar with this story, is like 2,600 years old, which is crazy. And we still, our children still learn about this story. The story goes something like this. There was a hare, a rabbit, and this rabbit was bragging to all the other animals in the forest that it was the fastest animal. No one could beat him in a race, that he challenged anyone to try and defeat him in a race. He said no one could do it. And one animal spoke up and said, I accept your challenge. Now, what animal was it? Was it this steed, this horse that can go galloping through the forest? No. Was it a a cheetah that was like, well, I I got this covered. I'm faster than a rabbit. No. It wasn't that animal that stepped up. It was the tortoise, the turtle. I mean, you can imagine, he probably even talked slow. I accept the challenge, okay? And the the rabbit like looks at him and just starts laughing. All the other forest animals start start laughing. Are you serious? You think you can beat me in a race? And, And the tortoise just says, look, leave your bragging for the end of the race. And so the rabbit's like, all right, let's do this. And they set up a race and they, there's the starting block and the rabbit gets up to the starting block. It takes the tortoise forever to even just get to the starting block. And he's there and all of a sudden the race starts and the rabbit, the hare, just takes off. There's actually a 1930s Disney animated uh, short film. It's like eight minutes. You can, you can find it on YouTube. And um, the way they depict it in like typical Disney fashion is the rabbit flies by. There's like this stork that's standing there and it runs past the stork and all its feathers blow off because the hare's running so fast. There's a, a, an owl that runs by and the owl's head like spins around a bunch of times. He's just run. I mean, just, you can't even see him. He's a blur. And he looks back and there's the tortoise, the turtle, just slowly one step after the other. And the, and the rabbit's like, this is ridiculous. This is not even a challenge. So what does he do? You know the story. He says, all right, that's it. I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to mock him by taking a break. So he sits down under a tree, just relaxing, whistling. There's just, it's not even close. And of course, what happens? The rabbit, the hare, falls asleep. And slowly the tortoise, slow and steady, just kind of goes along, passes the rabbit, doesn't say a word, just keeps going down the, the path. And slowly the, the rabbit is gone. He's just out sleeping and comes around the corner. And all the forest animals, they can't believe it. The turtle is going towards the finish line and they don't even see the rabbit. And so they can't believe it. They start cheering. They're cheering on the turtle. And he's just going as fast as he can and he can barely go this, just slow and steady as fast as he can. And they're cheering and they're cheering. And finally, all the commotion wakes up The rabbit. And the rabbit hears all their cheering, gets up to his feet, runs as fast as he can, but it's too late. The tortoise has crossed the finish line, and he has won the race. Now, they all, you guys are like, man, I'm motivated now. Okay, I can do this. I can do this life. I'm going to get it. Okay. He crosses through the finish line. The animals are cheering, and the tortoise just says one thing. that has been passed down for 2,600 years. He says, slow and steady wins the race. Okay, you know the story. Now, let me ask you a question. Is it true? There's a sense in which this story, there's truth in it. 
There's a reason that it's been around for thousands of years. This story, all of our life experience, we've seen something like this. We've seen something in our lives where someone was very prideful and didn't take the competition very seriously or, or they, someone was just started out really fast out of the gate but then fell asleep and we've learned how just slow and steady wins the race. So, so there's truth in it. But that's not the question. Is it true? Like, did it actually happen? It's one thing to say that there's truth in it because we might say, you know what, man, I'm motivated now. You know, slow and steady does win the race. I've had some pride in some areas of my life. There's some areas of my life I'm going to adjust a little bit because there's truth in it. If the story is actually true, we actually need to adjust a lot more in our lives, okay? We have to rearrange our thinking in our brains to accommodate talking animals, If that's a true story, we've got to start like rethinking the world that somewhere in the forest they're organizing foot races, okay? Like you're going to think differently when you see your pet rabbit when you get home, okay? They've got to, if it's actually true, it transforms everything. It's not just like, well, I'll do some things different in my life. No, I'm going to change everything if that story is historical. That would be crazy. So we're in a, a series called Road Trip. And we're talking about these encounters that people are having with Jesus in their life. And they're incredible. People get healed. The last person you've ever, you'd ever expect to have their life turned around, their life gets turned around. I mean, these are incredible stories. And, and let's ask this question. Are they true? Well, yeah, there's truth in it. I mean, every time we hear one of these stories, we're like, wow, that teaches us something about Jesus. There's a principle in there about our relationship with God. There's some things I'll do differently in my life. But that's not the question. Like, are they actually historically true? Sometimes I, I don't know that we'd ever say, well, no, they're not true. I mean, maybe some of us would, but maybe most of us would say, well, no, I wouldn't say that. But I still wonder if we're still filing that story in the category in our minds of what a neat story with some principles for our lives rather than this is history and that changes everything. We're looking, as we're closing up our series, we're looking in Matthew chapter 11. If you'd open that, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, open to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 20. This book is an account of Jesus' ministry. It's written by a guy named Matthew. And what he was a, a, almost certainly an eyewitness of this moment that we're reading about. And um, let, let's jump in. It's a story about Jesus. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. It says this. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. Because they did not repent. Let's unpack this a little bit. Who, who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. And in just a second, we're going to hear Jesus' words. And he describes, Matthew describes the words of Jesus we're about to read as a denunciation. He's denouncing someone. In fact, he's not just denouncing a person. He's denouncing three cities. The three cities we're going to, we're going to be, hear about are, is one city named Bethsaida, one named Chorazin, and one named Capernaum. Those are cities that are all in the northern part of Israel. They're right near each other, actually. They're kind of neighboring cities right to the north of the Sea of Galilee. He's going to denounce these cities. Now, what does that mean, denounce? 
actual wording we're going to hear Jesus say is woe to you. He's pronouncing a woe, W-O-E. He's pronouncing woe on these cities. He says, woe to you. So what does that mean? Is he cursing them? Well, it's not really a curse. He's not wishing something bad on them. He's by pronouncing a woe on them, denouncing them, he's just exposing what's already there. He's basically saying, you all don't realize how bad it is with you all. He's just saying, here's what's here. If, if you understood, I just wish you could understood what a woeful situation you have. He's not wishing anything bad. He's exposing something. Now, what is he, is, Matthew gives us a heads up on why he's denouncing these cities, why he's saying woe to these cities. And it's because these are the three cities that have seen the most mighty works of all the things that Jesus has done. They've seen the most, and they didn't repent. What do you mean by repent? Repent is a word that's used in the Bible. That means it's like this. If I'm going one direction in life, repent means I pull the e-brake and pull a U-turn immediately. It means to turn around, go the opposite direction, new destination, a completely uh, different path. It's like transformed. He's saying to these three cities, you have seen more than anyone else and it's not even made a dent on you. Look what Jesus says. Let's look at verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. You don't see this side of Jesus uh, very much, but it's there. I mean, this is not the merciful, compassionate, um, meek side of Jesus. This is the strong prophetic denunciation side of Jesus. And here's what he says. These are strong, frankly, terrifying words. He takes this, these two cities, Bethsaida and Chorazin, and he compares them to these other two cities, Tyre and Sidon. And the people who are hearing these words for the first time, they know exactly who these cities are. They're not too far away from them, farther north on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. They are principal cities in the Phoenician Empire. And they are known, especially through the Old Testament, by, they're known by God's people. They're constantly, they are actually denounced in the prophets in the Old Testament. They're denounced for a couple things. They were extremely wealthy, extremely powerful, but the problem was that led to extreme arrogance. They would beat their chest and say, we got this covered. We, they have all control. We have all power. They're unbelievably arrogant. And God saw that as, a, as an affront to him. And the prophets would denounce these cities, Tyre and Sidon. But here's what Jesus says to these, these towns in Israel. He says, you have seen so much. If Tyre and Sidon had seen what you had seen, they would have repented. But you haven't. He's essentially telling these towns, your hearts are so much more hardened than these people in Tyre and Sidon, so much more hardened. It would have changed them. It hasn't changed you. It just bounced right off you. No change, no repentance. But he goes on. He gives even stronger wording. Look at this. Verse 23. And you, Capernaum, 
will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. I mean, this is, he just ratcheted up as high as he possibly could have. 2,000 years before the time of Jesus, he's referring to something 2,000 years ago, there was a, a town that was notorious, even notorious in a lot of ways to this day, Sodom and Gomorrah. These were towns that were notoriously wicked. You say, well, what was the problem? What, what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah? They were filled with violence and murder. I mean, you, you took your life in your hands walking out of your house. It was filled with murder and rape and just violence. Especially, especially the poor were exploited in these towns. In fact, it's, it's notorious how they did completely disregarded those who were the weakest and most impoverished. And so God had had enough with their wickedness. He heard the cries of the poor in these towns and he wiped them out. 2,000 years before the time of Jesus, they are associated with wickedness, these two towns. And Jesus says this to Capernaum. Notice he isolates of those three cities, Capernaum, he says it's kind of even worse. He says, Capernaum, he said, if the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had seen what you have seen, they would have repented so thoroughly that 2,000 years later they would still be worshiping God. But not you, Capernaum. Your hearts have just didn't even make a dent. No repentance, no change, and you've seen so much. Strong words. Now, if you've been journeying with us through this series, you may think that the, the name Capernaum sounds familiar, and it does. A lot of the, the encounters we've talked about have happened in this town of Capernaum. We've talked about several towns. One of the towns we talked about was the, this town of Nain, we talked about how a widow had her son, um, Jesus, raised him back to life. Talked about the city in, of Jericho. There was a tax collector named, named Zacchaeus who was the last person you'd expect his life to turn around, but he turned his life around and, and became a believer in, in Jesus. Incredible things that happened. But most of the stories we're, we've talked about have happened in this town of Capernaum because they saw, they saw more things than anyone else. In fact, Jesus, this was kind of his home base throughout his ministry. The best we can tell by what the scripture says, he lived there. In fact, it was known as his home during his ministry. And it looks like the scripture saying he lived in Peter's house. That one day he came in, he healed Peter's mother-in-law and stayed with Peter whenever they would return back to Capernaum. I mean, think of all the things this town has seen. We talked about one day Jesus is teaching. He's there in, in Peter's house teaching. And the whole city, the whole town is emptied out to hear them. They're all jam-packed inside Peter's house. I mean, it says you can't even see inside the windows because people are trying to look in and they're looking in the door. And if you remember the story, there's four men and they've got a, a friend of theirs who's paralyzed. And they lay him on a mat and the four of them bring this man. They are, they are for sure, they're not going to leave until they get this man healed by Jesus. But they get to the house, I mean, everyone's jammed in there. They can't get through the door. They couldn't even pass them through the window. So what they do is they go up on the roof and some of the houses at that time period, the roofs were made of branches and mud and clay. And so they go up on the roof, they dig out a hole and while Jesus is teaching, debris falling down and then they lower this paralyzed man right in the midst of all of them and they watch this whole crowd jammed into this house 
Watch as Jesus heals him thoroughly. Like, he, he doesn't need any uh, physical therapy after this. He just gets up, picks up his mat, his muscles completely healed, and carries his mat back home. I mean, incredible. They all saw it. We talked about how in, in Capernaum, we talked about there's a guy, there's a centurion. He's posted, the, the Roman, there's a Roman garrison posted there, and the centurion, they loved this guy because he had helped build the synagogue there in Capernaum. And he comes to Jesus one day and he says, look, I've got a servant. He's back at my house and he's sick. Please, Jesus, can you heal him? And Jesus starts walking to the centurion's house and the centurion hears that he's coming and he sends word to Jesus. He says, no, no, I meant, could you just, just heal him from there? I know that you're that powerful. Just heal him. You don't need to come here. Just heal him from there. And Jesus goes, wow, I've never seen faith like this. And so he says, oh, and just turns around and walks, all Jesus says, and the man is healed all the way somewhere over in Capernaum where this man's house is, the man's healed. And the people are just marveling. Jesus didn't even see the man, didn't, doesn't know his name, didn't even diagnose his problem, doesn't need to. He thinks him better, well, from a distance. They marvel. Talk about there was a guy that lived in Capernaum, Matthew, the guy who's written the story that we're reading, and he was a tax collector, and he would have sat there by the roadside tax, collecting taxes. The last guy you'd think that would become a follower of Jesus, and Jesus says, you, you're the type of guy, come follow me. And Jesus goes and he sits with all his notoriously sinful friends, and they can't believe the compassion that Jesus has. That tell, told them something about who this was. They saw that. We talked about how one time Jesus is returning, he pulls up on, on a boat on the shore, and, and the whole crowd is waiting there, and there's a man named Jairus. And he, they all knew who this guy was. He was the ruler of the synagogue, and he sees Jesus coming, and he throws himself, maybe right there on the shore, he throws himself down just at Jesus' feet, pleading, him, pleading with him, my daughter is sick, she's about to die, please would you heal my daughter? And Jesus has compassion, said, let's go to your house. It says the crowd is just, they want to see this. They're all packed in. They're all bumping together down through this, this street. And, and there's one woman, and it says that this woman has had this disorder for 12 years, this infirmity in her body that's made her unclean. She's probably had to avoid crowds. She's uh, opposite of this guy who is the ruler of the synagogue. She's not even allowed to go in the synagogue for 12 years. But she risks it, and she pushes her way through the crowds, and she just wants to touch just the hem of Jesus' garment, and she touches it, and instantly, without a word, she's healed. In the span of about 30 minutes, Jesus has, ends up healing this man, Jairus' daughter, rises her back from the dead. Heals, he, he brings dignity to the broken and the healing to the brokenness of people at opposite ends of the spectrum, the man who rules over the synagogue and the woman who's not even allowed in the synagogue. And then last week we talked about one day Jesus is in that very synagogue there in Capernaum and there's a man, he's got a withered hand. And Jesus has compassion on him and says, stretch out your hand. And they watched as the man stretches out his hand and it comes back to life. I mean, full life in his hand. I mean, what did they witness? You know, muscle fibers and, and sinews coming back together, rippling under the surface of his hand. They saw that. Maybe they'd seen that guy with the withered hand every day of their life. Maybe he was like that all of his life. They saw it one day withered, the next day healed. I mean, they, they saw incredible things. These are unbelievable Jesus encounters. But you know, when we hear those stories, it's kind of tough for us sometimes because I, you know, we hear them like, oh wow, there's truth in those stories. I mean, those are, those are interesting. Those are fascinating. Those are truth in them. You know, we, there's some things I can apply to my life. 
But I wonder if we ever like file that into the category of that historically actually happened. I mean, we think about Capernaum. I mean, who's ever heard of a town called Capernaum? I mean, it might as well be named Narnia. I mean, I've never heard of a town like that. I mean, how do we know that this isn't, you know, far, far away in a, in a galaxy a long time ago? Or, I'm sorry, I totally butchered that phrase, but anyway. Um, how do we know this is a real town, okay? It just seems like it could be totally fake. How do we know this is actually history? I wonder if we put it in that category, because if we put it in that category, it doesn't just like, oh, there's some truths to tweak my life. This is something that could transform my life if this is for real. All right, I want to I help us see that this is real. Can I just show you a, a picture here? I want you to check this out. That right there, that's the ruins, the excavated ruins of Capernaum. It's a real place. It's in Israel. That, that, that water you see, that is the actual Sea of Galilee. It's not fake. It's there. You can go on Google Earth and you can look at a satellite image of it, okay? It's there. That's the ruins of Capernaum, okay? I want you to see, see the building there with the, with the half pillars on it. You can look around. You see those little squares that are partially excavated with no roofs on them? Those are houses, you know, like one of those houses probably belonged to a guy named Jairus where his daughter was laying in one of those houses and Jesus walked in. He's walking along those roads and walked into one of those houses and picked that, grabbed that girl by the hand and raised her back to life. Though, this is history. I want you to see something they found here. Go on to the next picture. They, they found this stone. You've got to see this. You see that cylindrical stone on top of that base. It says Via Maris on that stone. It's written underneath. It says Via Morris. And here's why that's so important. That's, that's a highway, an international highway that ran right along Capernaum, which is why Capernaum was a significant town. And a mile marker like that, it's not like in our society where there's highway markers and signs like every thousand yards. I mean, th- this is pointing that there's a significant intersection of the Via Morris right there by Capernaum, which means at that intersection, that's where tax collectors set up their booths. Do you realize what that means? Like that stone right there that you could, you could fly to Capernaum tomorrow and touch that stone. You might get arrested, but you could touch that stone right there, okay? That, that's the stone that Matthew sat by in his tax booth. That one. The guy that we just read his story right here, he sat by that one. So like on a slow tax collecting day, maybe he just went over and put his arm on that stone. This is history. Okay, I want you to go, go on the next picture. Like, See that this is um, that building you saw from the sky with those cut off pillars. This is a synagogue. And when they found the synagogue, they were hoping, well, maybe this is, you know, the synagogue of, of Jesus' day. And, and scholars, you know, as they started to dig in, dig it out and, and reconstruct it a little bit, say, well, no, th- this is limestone. So this is from probably the fourth century. This is hundreds of years after Jesus. This isn't where Jesus stood. But, it, you know, it's got historical value. And not too long ago, they kept digging around this synagogue. And here's what they found. Go to the next slide. What they found underneath, because limestone is from that, that, um, that century, that fourth century is what they build in, but the, century bef- the first century they built with this dark stone basalt, and they found running along the bottom this long wall made of basalt, and here's what the archaeologists realized. They had built this new synagogue on top of the original synagogue that was there in Jesus' day. Do you realize what that means? 
You can go there and you can stand, if you wanted, in Capernaum and stand right by that temple, the temple that the centurion funded, that Jairus ruled, that the woman was not allowed to enter, and a man one day with a withered hand stretched out his arm and it came back to life. This is history. This isn't something to file uh, along with all these neat fictional fables. This is history. Now I want you to see one more um, photo, uh, a couple more photos here. Go to, go to the other aerial. I mean, this blew my mind. You can see down there at the bottom that they have discovered, they excavated the Millennium Falcon right there in Capernaum. <laughs> Been searching for galaxies to find that right there, so it's there. Um, right there, that is actually a memorial that they built. You can see it's shaped like an octagon, and um, that, they built that in the 90s, and it's got a glass bottom underneath it, so you can see it's to memorialize what's underneath it. Now, here's a picture of what was there originally before they built this over top of it, okay? They found, as they're excavating Capernaum, they found, um, you can't really tell because the walls are broken down, but that's also shaped like an octagon, and they found that there was a church that was built there in the shape of an, a Christian church in the shape of an octagon. Now, this is from the 5th century. So that's about 400 years after Jesus. And they said, okay, so, well, that's interesting. Why did they build the church like an octagon? In that era, that was rare. They would only build a church like an octagon if it's commemorating something they thought happened there from the New Testament. Like, it's the tradition that this is the exact location. It's marking a specific location. So they're like, well, what possibly happened there? So they dug a little bit underneath the 5th century octagonal church, and they found um, a- another church that was more like a rectangle and from the 4th century, 100 years earlier, but still 300 years removed from Jesus. And they found there was a, a nun had written in her diary that they found that she had said she had taken a pilgrimage to Capernaum and that she had visited the actual house of Peter where Jesus stayed. So scholars are like, okay, that'd be cool, but this is 300 years removed from Jesus. I mean, if this was like a couple decades removed from Jesus where eyewitnesses are saying this is where it happened. I mean, if this is first century, that's one thing, but this is like 300s. So like, well, that'd be nice, but it's probably just tradition and not history. So they dug a little more. And you know what they found underneath that fourth century church? They found a first century from the time of Jesus, a house well, that's interesting. At least there's a house under there, but I mean, who's to say it's, it's Peter's? And they're like, well, other people are saying, well, why would they build a church over just a random house? Well, maybe it was just tradition. And so they started digging in this first century house that was there at the time of Jesus, and they found that they had plastered in that first century the walls on the inside. And the archaeologists are saying, well, they wouldn't plaster just any house. That was too expensive. But a public meeting place, they would plaster the walls. And so they go, okay, so sometime within a couple decades of Jesus, they have turned this house in the first century into a meeting place. But do we really know? I mean, was it a Christian meeting place or just a meeting place? So they started stripping back the layers of plaster. And you know what they found? They found these sayings, these Christian sayings, praising the name of Jesus, referencing Peter, and they find all these things, and all of a sudden, these scholars are stuck. There's nothing they can say. There was one ordinary house that within a couple decades of Jesus, Christians went into that house and were saying, let's venerate, memorialize this particular house. And most of the scholars are like, what more archaeological evidence could you even hope to find? I mean, this is like in biblical archaeology, this is considered one of the top 10 finds in history. It is the house that Jesus operated out of. This is Peter's house. 
And then there were still some scholars that said, I don't know, I'm not sure. Well, you know what else they found underneath the service in that first century house? Fish hooks. Sounds like Peter's house to me, I don't know. Here's what I'm trying to say to you. You can go and look at a house. This is the footsteps of Jesus. This is historical. This just happened. We've got to pull the file out from our brain where we say, that's a nice fable. Let's, let's add some details into our life. And we have to refile it into a new category and say, that is history. It's not just let me tweak my life a little bit. It's if that's actually true, I've got to transform my thinking because what this means, if this is history, it means there was a man 2,000 years ago that walked on this planet who was saying, I am the son of God. And to anyone who doubted, he did miracles right in front of them. And people started following him saying, this man is the son of God. And he gets crucified to a cross. He dies on the cross and rises again from the, from the grave, which just took these followers from being half-hearted people that wanted to believe in, these, in this guy to being people who were fanatical, saying, I saw him dead and then I saw him alive. And they went to their grave, getting nothing from this world but being outcast and ridiculed and tortured to their death saying, I know, but it's true, I saw it. And what did this Messiah, this Son of God, God in the flesh say? He said, I am here to pay for the sins of the world, to make things right between you and God. I am here to purchase your salvation. If that's true, if these encounters with Jesus are true, They're not just, oh, there's got some good morals. Let let me just tweak my existing life. I've got to rearrange some things in my thinking. I don't know when the last time you were using um, GPS, maybe um, even this week, you know, using, or maybe use Waze or like one of those apps. And man, that voice that's telling you where to turn, I mean, it's so helpful. You know, just, it's so nice, you know. And 1,000 feet, turn left. Don't worry, I'll tell you five more times. Left is the one that makes the L, okay? I mean, so helpful, all right? And I feel bad when, like, I miss the turn. Like, I feel like now the nice voice has, like, an edge to it. Rerouting, you moron. You know, it's like, <laughs> I'm sorry, I missed it, okay? So you, there's, there's rerouting. What is rerouting, all right? It, it's got another, another street, another way to get you to the same destination, right? That's what rerouting is. You know, rerouting is not the same as repentance. Rerouting is like, let me take a different street to get to the same destination. Repentance is, turn off the GPS. I'm not even going in the right direction. I'm not even going to the right destination. I've got to turn the car around and go back the other way. See, here's the point. We look at this story and we see Jesus saying to Capernaum, woe to you. You saw so much. You saw all these mighty works. You should have put it together. This is the Messiah. That should have not just made a dent. It should have not just tweaked your life. It should have transformed your life. But let me ask this uncomfortable question. What would Jesus say to us? We have no more blanks to fill in. We have the whole story. We have the story of all the towns. 
We have it all filled in. And, and we don't even have what most of the generations of Christians had where the stories were not even in the language they spoke. So they had to find someone who could translate it from that language so they could understand what it would say. And that's after they crept out of their house risking their life to hear what the message was. We're not like those generations that finally got it, got this message in their own language, but they couldn't read, so they had to have someone else read it to them. We're, we're not even like the generations that you can go by your own and you can read and you can carry it out in the open. You could carry it with you every day. You could carry it to school, to work, wherever you want. No one's going to bother you. You could read it anytime you want. We're not even like that. You can actually get for free as, as many different English translations as you want downloaded to your phone you can listen to it any time, read to you. We've got, we've got something that no generation in history has had even close to. And what is Jesus going to say? He's saying, this is true. Has it, has it tweaked your life or has it transformed your life? Is it rerouted you a little bit? Well, now I have a better way to get to the same destination I'm going. Or has it rearranged and been total repentance in your life? Or am I still saying, well, you know, really, I have the same goal, the same destination. It's I'm trying to get things out of this world. I'm trying to get the best it's got to offer. I'm trying to get wealth and success and popularity and, and pleasure and the relationships that I want. I'm going after the same thing. And maybe the Bible can just tell me a little bit more spiritual route to get to the same things. Do you know what Jesus would say to that? Woe to you. You don't realize how bad it is. The truth is trying to save you from the darkness of being chained to that false God that you're after. That's going to take you down the sins that you're saying, well, I'm going to keep this. I'm just going to reroute my life. He's saying that is going to destroy you and destroy your relationships. He's like, you don't even realize how bad it is. You don't realize what you've been exposed to. He says, woe to you? Is it tweaking or transforming? Is it rerouting or is it repentance? Has your encounter with Jesus changed everything where you say to Jesus, I'm renouncing anything this world has to offer because I know my destination. It's eternity in heaven bought by the blood of Jesus and that is my goal, my focus, that is the singular thing I'm after. Nothing changes that. Can I ask you like this? Because I don't know another more simplistic way to ask you this. Is your faith the most important thing in your life or not? Is it the most important thing or not? It's one or the other. Because if it's, well, I still have all my priorities. I'm just making it a more spiritual route to get there. If that's what we're saying, woe to us. What would transform us so mightily? What would make us draw a line this morning and say, I've got to change everything. I've just got to surrender to you. Everything is yours, Jesus. I'm going to, I'm going to turn from the things that are not the way you want it. I'm, going to turn, I'm, I'm handling it all yours. Everything is yours. You're my priority. Nothing gets before you. What would make us do that? You know, when I was in eighth grade, I was on the football team. And um, I was... Uh, Someone's laughing at that, and I find that really <laughs> hurtful. I'm shocked. I was on the football team, and um, I was going to say that in eighth grade, I was kind of small and scrawny. That's a shock to many of you. Um, and so I'll never forget, my, my good friend um, 
his name is Matt Cavanaugh, and he was the star of the football team. And so, uh, he, I mean, probably two-thirds of all the points we scored, he scored that year. He's a fullback, and he'd just always break open a run and just run down the field. I mean, we, he, was, he was the star of the football team, unquestioned. And so when they were passing out jerseys, I got, in the beginning, I got number 22. It was a small jersey. That's why I got it. He got number 44. It was a large jersey because he was a bigger guy. And afterwards, he comes up to me. He's all disappointed. He's like, man, I, I really wanted number 22. He was a big Emmett Smith fan. You guys remember Emmett Smith? He's a big Emmett Smith fan, and he was a fullback, so he was hoping to have number 22. He's like, dude, will, will you trade jerseys with me? And I'm like, what am I going to say? I mean, I'm going to be on the bench all season, okay? This is the star of the football team. I'm like, of course. So I give him my jersey, you know, which now clings to him because it's small. makes him look all rippled muscular, and I'm in a tent now, <laughs> which makes me feel like even smaller, okay? And I'll never forget. There was this one game. I, I'll never forget this game. Um, I, uh, we, we were, it was an away game, and the coaches had sent the wrong, the old roster to the opposing team. And so whenever they would see number 22, the roster said that was Roby Barnes, and anytime you saw 44, the roster said Matt Cavanaugh. So here's what's happening. I'm just sitting there, I'm like, there's like five lines of people standing from, I'm not even looking at what's happening on the field, I'm so bored, okay, like I have one grass stain from when I was stretching out before the game, okay, and all of a sudden, like, you know, Matt goes tearing down the field and once again scores another incredible touchdown, and over the loudspeaker in the entire stadium, it says, Roby Barnes runs in for the touchdown. My friends are looking at me, and I'm like, I, I'm just, I've been here the whole time, you know, <laughs> So the entire game, oh, just over and over, Roby Barnes scores another touchdown, you know? It was incredible, the best game I ever played that day. <laughs> so the problem was, and this I felt bad for Matt, so, you know, Matt, he did that every game, so he didn't care, but the problem was, by the end of the fourth quarter, I'm in with all the scrubs, because the coach felt bad for us, and I'm on defense, and I'm playing linebacker, which was a joke, okay? And at the same time, every time something bad happened to me, they'd call Matt. So I'd be like, and Matt Cavanaugh gets annihilated, you know, for the first down, <laughs> okay? So after the game, I talked to Matt Cavanaugh, and, and he just laughed it off. He didn't care, you know, it was not a big thing. But I was playing this out in, the, through my, in my mind. I was like, hey, what if, though, this wasn't just an eighth grade football game? You know, it didn't matter a whole lot. What if it was like our senior year, and we were in states, and it was written up in the paper that Roby Barnes had won the game? I mean, would Matt have still been a good enough friend to be like, ah, that's all right? And then I was wondering, okay, but what if, what if it just like kind of kept going throughout our lives? And it was, what if we, we both ended up, you know, joining a football team, one because they thought I had been a star, so we're on a D1 football team, and Matt, by his skill, gets on the football team, but they still think I'm Matt and he's Roby, and then I get invited to get a Heisman Trophy, even though Matt's really the one who earned it. I mean, at the end, when I'm holding the Heisman Trophy, is Matt Calvin going to be like, dude, that's all right, man, we're, we're buddies. But what if, like, we, we keeps going throughout our life? Like, uh, what if it ends up that, that we're, our identity is always confused? And what if I go into, like, a life of crime, and Matt goes into, like, to winning a Nobel Prize, okay? And at the end, they get us confused, and he gets sent to prison all his life, and then I'm holding a Nobel Prize, and, and he gets his one phone call, and he calls me. Do you think he's going to be like, man, that's okay. Don't worry about it. But what if... Someone came to earth, and he and I switched places. 
And he lived a perfect, spotless life. And I had a life just filled with sin and deserved the wrath of God. And he deserved glory and deserved heaven. But what if we traded places and he gets nailed to a cross and he's being tortured and he's bleeding with a crown of thorns on his head and just crying out to God, asking why God has completely separated himself from a man as he's taking all the sins on himself. And my sins get washed completely clean and I end up spending an eternity in heaven even though I lived a life of sin and he lived perfect righteousness. I'm I'm getting rewarded based on his righteousness and he's getting rewarded based on my sin. And if you have that exchange, an exchange that affects history, affects eternity, you have the story of every single person in this room. If it's true, what we need to do walking out of here is not tweak. It's transform. It's not reroute. It's repentance. Christian, are you here and you say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I don't know that I've ever just said, it's all yours, God. This is my number one focus, my number one priority. Make that decision today. Are you here and you're saying, Jesus, I I need to put my faith in you for the first time. I realize what you did to save me. Then you can make that decision for the first time this morning. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes with me? For those of you who are saying, you know what, there's some things I'm not submitting to Jesus in. There's some old priorities in my life that I am, I am I'm not giving over to Jesus. I still have my old priorities that I'm just rerouting a more spiritual course to the same things. Then today, Christian, just stop and repent. Tell God you're the most important thing. There's nothing to compete with. But some of you are here and you say, I need to give my life to you, Jesus, for the first time. It's not about what I do, but what he did. Then I want you to pray this simple prayer right there in your seat. Between you and God, just accept the exchange he made. He paid for your sin, all of it on the cross. Just receive that today. If that's you, pray this prayer right there in your seat. Just pray this, Jesus, right between you and God. Say, Jesus, thank you for saving me. Thank you for trading places with me. Thank you for paying for my sins. I give you my life in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out our other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954-432-432. 0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.